0: Hello, SoundCloud listeners. Some news. This is the last new episode of On Being that we'll be uploading to SoundCloud. We are still making new shows. You can find them in our entire archive in the On Being feed on almost every podcast app. And as always, you can also find all of our content, including our other shows, libraries, starting points, and everything we do at onbeing.org. That's onbeing.org. I'll see you there, and thank you for being part of the community we built
1: here. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting fetzer.org. I'm
0: Krista Tippett, still recording from my living room. Up next, my unedited conversation with the wonderful writer Ocean Vong. As always, there is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast.
2: This is Hi. Hello. Wow, that is a weird noise to to rise up on stage to. Welcome, happy Sunday. Uh, On Air Fest stands for creativity, pushing the boundaries of the audio medium, and something else. Elevating podcasting and storytelling as an art form. I'm Dan Taberski. Uh, Who did that? Uh, my people. Uh, I make uh, long-form narrative uh, audio documentaries. Uh, You may know me from uh, last year, I had a a series called Running From Cops. Um, Before that, I had a series called Surviving Y2K. Uh, And then, there we go. Uh, And then before that, I had my first and my favorite, and the hill I know I will die on defending, uh, Missing Richard Simmons. I'm here for it, Uh, to the end. Um, I was part of the festival last year. I was in conversation with Nick Kwa. Is Nick here today? No. Aww. If you ever want to have some fun, just go online and, like, anything that Nick Kwa says on Twitter, just follow it up. Just reply, boo, and watch him get upset. Uh, he's amazing and lovely. Uh, so, but I'm, I'm really happy to be part of it again. Um, it was kind of a revelation for me last year to be part of a festival that treats audio as art form. Um, and, uh, Uh, sometimes as somebody who makes audio, that's a hard thing to say that you're trying to make art, even if you're not always getting there. Um, but, uh, but for me, it's about, it's been about making, trying to make art in the final product, but also, um, it's really helped me live a more artful life along the way. Um, you, uh, you only hear, if you listen to my work, you hear a tiny, tiny fraction of the conversations I get to have with people. Um, and, um... And those people open up their hearts and their minds to you. And, um, and it's, uh, they, they help me live more artfully every day. And, and as I continue to do it, it changes the way I think and look at the world. Uh, and so I'm really happy to be here, uh, part of this. So thanks for having me. Uh, and the restrooms are outside, if that made you nauseous. Um, the, uh, there's also coffee and water in the back if you're thirsty or getting sleepy, which you won't. Um, uh, we want to hear from you at On Air Fest on Instagram and Twitter if you want to tweet along or Insta-along, whatever they call that. Oh, just so you know, I'm a sweater. Uh, don't be afraid. Can you see it? Right, it's getting, is it getting weird? No, I go into meetings. When I go into meetings, I literally say, I'm a sweater. I did not just do cocaine. Because it just starts, when I start thinking, it just starts. And then it makes it worse when you, yeah, anyway. You'll see. Uh, Anyway, uh, some business on Airfest would not be possible without the support of our sponsors who are such a big part of making this weekend possible. Uh, Netflix, they provided the uh, breakfast upstairs, thanks for that, I had four mini muffins. Uh, Thank you to Audible for providing a great space to relax, network and hear great stories out in the lobby. Uh, throughout the day, you can visit the Spotify Portrait Studio downstairs. Uh, just ask anyone with an On t-shirt uh, and they can take you down there. You all know you want to do it. Um, it's like a nice picture of yourself for free. Um, uh, also, uh, all day today, you can check out the Adobe Suite on the seventh floor, room 705. they got snacks, uh, coffee, and they also have demos of Adobe Audition uh, if you guys are interested in that. Um, plus, there's a conversation happening during the lunch break with 99% Invisible's Avery Truffleman. Um, with uh, Seir Caveto, so, uh, and snacks, so, three good things. Um, and for those of you in the crowd who use Adobe, uh, and you want to check it out, you can get a 90-day subscription to Adobe for free by visiting the Adobe Suite. Again, that's room 705 uh, during lunch. Open bar tonight at Sunset uh, to celebrate Honor Fest, courtesy of Jefferson Studios and Warner Chapel Music. And many, many thank you. Uh, thank yous are due to the Wythe Hotel uh, for hosting this whole thing and making it so lovely. You guys ready to get started? Yeah, me too. Come on. All right, each week, On Being with Krista Tippett is broadcast on over 400 public radio stations, including nine of the top 11 markets. The podcast averages nearly 4 million listens monthly, which is annoying. (laughs) But deserved, so well-deserved. Krista Tippett was awarded the 2013 National Humanities Medal by President Obama for thoughtfully delving into the mysteries of human existence. On Being is the only program in American media dedicated to the large questions at the center of human existence and how these questions of meaning find practical resonance in our lives. I've spent many Sunday mornings with Krista Tippett in my years, uh, and I'm really excited to introduce her today. Uh, Please welcome to the stage Krista Tippett.
0: I'm with my people. Um, oh good, it's working. It's such an honor to be part, to be invited to be part of the On Air Fest and to do a show here. I'm really excited. I love this room and I love the energy in it that you all are bringing. Um, and yeah, what an honor and a delight to be up here with Ocean Vuong. who I want to describe as a writer and wise person who, at a young age, has made a singular contribution to American letters. As a writer of poetry and essays uh, in this novel that you may have heard of, um, the word gorgeous that occurs in the title On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous is a word that's also often used to describe your writing and your voice, your literary voice. and also, you know, Ocean, I want to say I, I'm aware that when people write about you and introduce you and describe you, they, they often speak about how your work is shaped by themes of violence and survival. Um, in the context of the immigrant experience, in the context of life and displacement in the aftermath of war, in the context of growing up Asian American and queer in the society. And, and that is true, and we're going to talk about violence. But but I'd also say that the sweep of your work is about bearing witness to the other side of violence and the possibility of joy while taking nothing away and continuing to bear witness to the fullness of what has been carried and, and what has been survived. So. We have 90 minutes, which I think they've given us an incredible luxury, which is what I like to have. So, we really get to delve into who you are and how you move through the world and what you make in and of our world. A little bit of housekeeping. We're going to have a conversation up here for 50, 60 minutes. Um, Then, uh, we will have a bit of, we'll open the conversation up to the room. I think there will be a mic somewhere. I know there will be. and we'll do that for about twenty minutes, and then we will come back um, and close the conversation out here, since we are recording it for broadcast. So let's start. Oh, did I, I didn't mention that you're a MacArthur Genius?
1: But <laughs> <laughs> I have no proof.
0: <laughs> um, you were born in Saigon, and when you were two years old in nineteen ninety. Your family came to the U.S. Um, you know, I have this question that I ask at the beginning of most of my conversations—an inquiry about the religious or spiritual background of someone's childhood, or however they would define that now. I just—I—I I wonder how you—if—if—if um, if, if there there are aspects of your childhood to which you would attach that language of spiritual, religious.
1: Yeah, my 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 family is traditionally Buddhist, um, but they were also illiterate, and so they, as uh, the extent of their Buddhism, were rooted in rituals and care. And so, you know, every day before school, my mother would get me to the altar, and we would start to name this sort of roll call, um, the people in our family, mm. and try to bless them and and think about them and tend to them um, and, and to, to ourselves. And so spirituality began with care rooted in physical bodies. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it didn't extend beyond the household. Um, th- there was no mythical uh, presence to it. It was very, it was almost like this um, abracadabra that we did before we stepped out of the, the house into the rest of the world. And and thereby the rest of America, and I think for me that held true. After I I grew up and I started to read, I studied liter- literature and then I studied Buddhism mm-hmm. in that order. And I said, what were we doing back there? Mm. You know, I think it's very common for a lot of folks to to look back, having more language in order to understand childhood. In in this case, Buddhism. Yeah. And uh, I think, for me, it's still whatever my mother presented to me those early mornings in front of the altar is still true. And I think I embrace that in everything I do, Uh, writing, sitting with you now. How do I do it with care? And even in the temples, in many Asian-American households, when you enter the house, you take off your shoes. Now, we're not obsessed with cleanliness any more than anyone else. But the act is an act of respect. I'm going to take off my shoes to enter something important. I'm going to give you my best self. Hmm. And I think even consciously when I read or give lectures or when I teach, I lower my voice, I want to make my words deliberate, I want to enter, I want to take off the shoes of my voice so that I can enter a place with care so that I can do the work that I need to do.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, In a number of places, you told a story also about um, a Baptist church in your neighborhood that you Mm -hmm. would visit on Sundays, um, partly because they had ice cream. (laughs) Um, But also that you became really taken with the story of Noah's Ark in a way that that is really... um, that says a lot about you know. It says a lot about how you approach your your art and your life.
1: Yeah, I, I think that myth. You know, I, I would go to I would sleep over a friends' house. And I grew up in Hartford, a predominantly black and brown neighborhood. And the next morning, my friends would give me their clothes, their church clothes, and we would just go. It was just easier to go rather than drive me back to my mother's house. So I would end up you know attending. You know, throughout my childhood, hundreds of church services in the Baptist church, and the, the preacher kept talking about Noah's Ark, and I was so infatuated. I think it embedded into my psyche, in, in really everything that I do, even to this day. You know, what, what an incredible mythos to work and live by, which is that when the apocalypse comes... What will you put into the vessel for the future? The, the demand on an assessment of human good and value,
3: hmm.
1: and, and then also the abandonment of what's not useful, right? I mean, that, that confrontation with filtering for gold for the future is, is incredibly prescient, I think, in, in all American life. Because American life begins with systemic violence, the, the theft of bodies enforced through slavery, the genocide of Native American life. And so our very birth as a nation is grounded in this flaw of death. And I think for, for me, the more I live in this country, the more Noah's responsibility um in the bible becomes truer to me as a person even on the most granular level what am I going to do with my day so that I can put all the good things and then build an architecture to hold those things hmm. so it outlasts the storm
0: hmm. it's also such an image of um well it's, it's 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 preparing for the apocalypse and getting beyond it which is which is also an experience that, that many people have, even in our world right now. It's an immigrant experience, a migrant experience, as we've started to call it. Um, getting ready to interview you made me ponder also the particular s- strangeness and singularity of the, what it is to be Vietnamese American. Mm-hmm. Your family. Um, and and in your case you know your family was not just fleeing a war and in the aftermath of war and surviving that but you it was it was our war right mm-hmm. you are vietnamese american and both sides of that equation right. were at war and you
1: were literally born because of that war yeah i i think it's on one hand, it's incredibly surreal. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it felt inevitable. And just
0: to say that your mother was the daughter of a... An American soldier. An American soldier yeah. who fell in love with a Vietnamese girl. And yeah. then the whole family was blasted apart, yeah. just as the country was blasted apart. Yeah.
1: It's a strange epic, you know. Yeah. Um,
0: you wrote somewhere, um, no bombs equals no family equals no me. Yikes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yikes, indeed. Um, um, You know, what do we do? Um, But I think it's it's also a question integral to our species. Every every country has a great epic: Gilgamesh, the Iliad, the Odyssey. You know, the Infernos, and um, it's all about war and violence. And I think one of the central questions in my work is, you know, as much destruction as there always has been in human history, there was love and beauty simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't, they don't cancel each other out. Yeah. They exist as independent truths um, interlocked. And, and, you know, this, this, this Michigan farm boy, my grandfather, went to Vietnam to play the, the trumpet you know, he was trying to uh, escape his domineering father, who didn't allow him to go to music school. So a 19-year-old kid thinking, as teenagers do, well, I'll I'll go to war and play a trumpet. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, and so um, when he met my grandmother and they married, and he was going to stay there. um, Yeah. He was going to stay in Vietnam and have a new life, and then Saigon fell, um, so we. I'm a product of war, um, but I think so much of American life is a product of war. Yeah, you know, we're standing on stolen ground. It's just um, very literal, literal in your story. Yeah, it's yeah, really concentrated. Well, I'm a first generation. You know, I think this is why the work of Toni Morrison's Beloved was so important to me, mm-hmm. because I saw in Beloved, a first-generation testimony in the, in the character Setha, leaving the South and creating Beloved, her daughter, to, to, you know, to, to, to save her daughter. And never before have I seen a parallel close enough to the story of my own mother, who come, comes out of her own epicenter, and I'm being her son, also my own Beloved. To, to, to see uh, Amer- American literature hold the testimony of first-generation survival, mm-hmm. to live on both sides of death and life um, in one you know, short period of time, half of one's life, um, felt so powerful to me. And I, I learned so much from that book. And I also realized that so much of American citizenship does not begin for the immigrant when he arrives on American mm-hmm. shores. It begins when the first bombs fell in Vietnam. American citizenship, in this sense, begins with American foreign policy. How you see or missee the world will result in who arrives on your shores. And I think when we start to recalibrate this deeper, you know, deeply felt and deeply memorized history, we can arrive at a more holistic understanding of what fabricates American citizenship in this country. And I think that's the great flaw of this Make America Great Again thing, because it performs memory, but it is in fact amnesia. When we pressure it to say, where is again? The conversation falls apart. And I think that, that horror of looking back is, is Incredibly detrimental because, in order to understand who we are, we have to know what we've done to each other. Mm-hmm.
0: I I wanted to maybe have you read um, a poem from uh, your your book of poetry, Night Sky with Exit Wounds. So this this poem. The scene is set with the fall of Saigon. Mm -hmm. This is not ancient history, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it's history. And and this is also history, the history of the Vietnam War, the 60s. It's all shaping us now, but there's a lot of amnesia about it. As I I read it, your grandfather, this Michigan farm boy soldier, had gone home to visit his family, and Saigon fell Mm -hmm. after he left. And then everybody was separated for a very long time, right? Yeah. Um, but you wrote this poem about a bod with burning city. Maybe read the, sure. the, the opening as well.
1: South Vietnam, April 29th, 1975. Armed Forces Radio played Irving Berlin's White Christmas as a code to begin Operation Frequent Wind. The Ultimate Evacuation of American civilians and Vietnamese refugees by helicopter during the fall of Saigon. Milk flower petals in the street like pieces of a girl's dress. May your days be merry and bright. He fills a teacup with champagne, brings it to her lips. Open, he says. She opens. Outside, a soldier spits out his cigarette as footsteps fill the square like stones fallen from the sky. May all your Christmases be white as the traffic guard unstraps his holster. His fingers running the hem of her white dress, a single candle, their shadows two wicks. A military truck speeds through the intersection, children shrieking inside, a bicycle hurled through a store window when the dust rises, a black dog lies panting in the road, its hind legs crushed into the shine of a white Christmas on the bedstand a sprig of magnolia expands like a secret herd for the first time the treetops glisten and children listen the chief of police face down in a pool of coca-cola a palm-sized photo of his father soaking beside his left ear the song moving through the city like a widow a white A white, I'm dreaming of a curtain of snow falling from her shoulders. Snow scraping against the window. Snow shredded with gunfire. Red sky, snow on the tanks rolling over the city walls. A helicopter lifting the living just out of reach. The city so white it is ready for ink. The radio saying run, run, run. Milk flower petals on a black dog, like pieces of a girl's dress. May your days be merry and bright. She is saying something neither of them can hear. The hotel rocks beneath them, the bed, a field of ice. Don't worry, he says, as the first shell flashes their faces. My brothers have won the war, and tomorrow... The lights go out. I'm dreaming. I'm dreaming to hear sleigh bells in the snow. In the square below, a nun on fire runs silently toward her god. Open, he says. She opens.
0: Okay, that's... Um, I just i didn't realize it's so powerful to read and yeah. to have it in the room like that is um it's hard to move on from mm-hmm. um you want to say anything just is that hard
1: to is that hard for you to read um it's 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 strange. You write something, and y- it's almost like you send it down river. You put mm-hmm. it on the raft, and you send the book down river. And if you you know, it's tempting to jump on the raft, and 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 be with it, but you can't make another raft on a raft without destroying it. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I just you know I think I'm I'm just on. right now in my head I'm on the shore trying to figure out what to build next so it's so far from me Um, but everything I think worthwhile is hard to do Mm -hmm. even reading it back and Mm -hmm. reading it back again I realized you know so much of that moment is this the grotesque the grotesque created from beauty this sort of easy cheesy beauty of Berlin's white christmas yeah. and the surreal nature of that song which is a song about white, dreaming of white christmas in LA right with palm trees where there's no snow to begin with right. and for the american radios to use that song as a code also it was april yeah yeah I, was like i read that really it was yeah. april and it's interesting because it's it's a it's interesting that, that moment the emblematic American moment where there's a cheery holiday song in the midst of horror, but also it's coded because it's exclusive. If you don't know what the song means, your life cannot be rescued. And I felt that so much of what happened in Saigon in that moment was also happening throughout American history simultaneously. With the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King, is that so? Who, if you don't, if this song is not for you, then we're not thinking about you. That your rescue Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. cut off from the beginning Mm -hmm. of the song's play, even though it's something as democratic as sound, right? If if you're not in the code, then you're not in the program.
0: I wanna talk about. about the power of words and language, um, which, which, you know, given the beginnings of your life, as you said, your, your family was illiterate. Your mother did not never spoke English, and, and really only, I think you said, it was kind of could read and write Vietnamese at about a fifth grade le- uh, mm-hmm. level. There's a lot of dyslexia in your family. You also struggled with that. Um, I wonder, um, and how old were you
1: when you actually learned to read? Um, a, lot, a lot of the, the the magazines, is say, 11. Um, I mean, <laughs> you don't wake up at 11. Okay, let's set the story
0: straight
1: <laughs> <laughs> You don't wake up one morning and start reading books. You know, it's a slow, arduous task. So it, I started reading, you know, I went to ESL. I yeah. went through the American education system, for better or for worse. Um, and I would, I was able to read, but my fluid you know, chapter book reading where I could just sit down and read a book. Didn't happen until I was 11. But okay. I was able to pick out words here and there. It was much delayed, yeah.
0: I mean, was, there, was there a moment where, where, you, where you can look back and where you started to feel in your body the power of words which you now work
1: with? Right away. I mean, I, I was surrounded by storytellers. Right. And I think
0: I think somewhere you said you don't. After all, you don't have to be able to to, to not be able to read does not mean you don't have stories to tell. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: It, it's I was surrounded by survivors and storytellers, and so my grandmother and my grandma and my mother and my aunts would tell stories to you know recalibrate their past to make sense of their past, and that my root in in the narrative and literary techniques and embodiment begins way before I entered a classroom. And when you think about how people tell stories, stories are carried in the body, and it's edited each time the person tells it. And so what you you have by the time someone tells a story is a masterclass of form, technique, concision, imagery, even how to pause, which you don't really get on the page. Right. Um, arguably, you do in poetry with the line break. And this is what these women were giving me. I didn't know how valuable that given mm-hmm. was. You know, the German critic Walter Benjamin says that the, the novel is actually a break from storytelling. It comes with the printing press and immediately takes storytelling from the work of peasants and tradespeople in the market yeah. to the middle class. So it controls it. Right. Uh-huh. So now stories are an independent, isolated experience. But for me, I think my experience as a writer can, in a way, traces the path of human storytelling in the span of 20 years, because mm-hmm. I began in the oral tradition surrounded by that and then now being a writer, entering the world of books. Mm-hmm. Um, but my imagination was, in a way, given to me, handed to me, by these women through their stories. You know, we had nothing in Hartford. Just the walls were blank. But as soon as they taught, start telling the stories, I saw this canvas open up. Yeah. And I realized that a listener is not passive. A listener doesn't just sit back right the way we sit back in a movie theater a listener has to participate in the making mm-hmm. alongside with the storyteller and so for me writing is always this communal exchange this dialogue between two people it's also very
0: moving and interesting to me the way you and you're, you started talking about this you write about how vietnamese culture that, that you were that you were immersed in how language is so embodied. I mean, someplace you said in the New Yorker, you wrote a lot of love is communicated in Vietnamese culture through service. You know, you, we cook, we massage, we scratch each other's back. There's not a lot of saying "I love you," mm-hmm.
1: but mm-hmm. it's communicated in those ways. Yeah, the, the body is the ultimate witness to love, and and I learned that right away. You know, we don't say "I love you." We do. We say it in English as a sort of Really? That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's almost like a cultural thing, you know, just kind of. We almost say it in lieu of goodbye. We don't know how to say goodbye either, right? It's just, we don't, we say bye bye, right? And um, I think because what, what happens is that through the body and through service, you articulate it through paying attention. So, when you tend to the body and you articulate care, nothing can say "I love you more than feeling it from somebody and I think this this relationship is how I start to see words. you know I looked at them as if they were things I could move mm-hmm. and care for, I feel and like, I, the yeah, more, yeah
0: you and the language of energy You, know, you use a lot of en- energy metaphors And imagery for how you work with words And how words work in us yeah. You've yeah. said that prose and poetry Are different conductors of energy
1: Yeah, yeah I think it's You know, we can As, as a species, as life on earth We've been dying for millennia But I don't think energy dies mm-hmm. It's transformed And when you're using language, you, know, it, it's, you can create it, use it to, to divide people and build walls, or you can turn it into something where we can see each other more clearly as a bridge. And that, that notion that you are a participant in the future of language is something I think our American education failed us. Say some more about that. You are a participant
0: in the future of language.
1: Well, we're taught, particularly in elementary school, to learn a standardized language. And you realize right away that standard English is incredibly politicized. And when you ask, why is it this way? Why is this the standard? You arrive at a very arbitrary answer. And an answer which actually excludes, you know, often people of color. Your English is wrong, this English is right, right? And you realize that that trap, that forcing a student to learn standard English, traps them into thinking that they just, it's fixed. I gotta learn the rules so I can write an email and feel, appear respectable to the world. And then I go on with my life. But in fact, language is always changing. And I think it's the poets, the writers, and even the youth they're, they're using language to cast new meaning in the same way Chaucer just winged English spelling. There was no standardized right. spelling. Right, So right. he was like, spring, S-P-R-Y-U-G? Sure. Let's, let's try it out. Um, and, and I think the way language exists is similar to, you know, when I was in Hartford, we were surrounded by these abandoned buildings, mm-hmm. these old factories. The Colt Gun Factory was in Hartford. It was the first industrial machine in America. And it sold weapons to both sides during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would go into these abandoned warehouses and just to play and explore. And I would remember seeing these old warped windows. The, the, the glass just melting and looking through. At my city, the city I thought I knew so well, through this glass, was so surreal. Everything changed, everything was warped. And to me, that's what language is, the glass. You think it's fixed, you think it's clear pane of glass, but in fact, through years it starts to drip and melt and change. And I think that's kind of how, um, what's really exciting about technology and paying attention to American life, because we're always actually changing it. Even the phrase, you know, throwing shade, right, Netflix and chill. These things are full of metaphor and meaning and context, and they actually are the sum total of the innovations and evolutions of our species. In order to have Netflix and chill as a phrase, we must have high speed internet we must have a movie-going culture, right? cinema, everything is there. Right. And then also the subversiveness towards pleasure around mm-hmm. systems of power, i.e. adults or what have you. Um, so language is always shifting and if we surrender agency, we say, I'm not a participant in it, then we get played. You know, if you look at the history of, of this country and how the media works, you realize, you come to a certain point where you say, either I better get on top of this or I will get played. And when you get played, you lose, you know, yourself, you lose your freedoms, your civil liberties. Yeah. And one could argue that we've been getting played for decades.
0: Yeah, even, even that, that notion that that language is clear, even the this presumption that we walk around making that, that what we mean when we use any word yeah. transmits perfectly to another, right? that it's always imperfect, which is also yeah. what makes art so exciting and right. creative, right? We, tell, we often tell
1: our, our, our students, the future's in your hands, yeah. but I think the future is actually in your mouth. You have to, you have to articulate. Yeah. The world you want to live in first, yeah. and the truth is, we the living are a minority. The dead outnumber us. Yeah. And in this moment of the present, you know, if you look at stratified rock, you know, we're just one line, you know, and we're gonna be, and we're gonna be one line after. And here we are. This is our chance. This little str- little strip to to really activate a better linguistic and therefore bodily future for ourselves. What are you going to say into the world? And Mm -hmm. I think we pride ourselves as a country that's very technologically advanced. We have strong, good sciences, good schools, very advanced weaponry, for sure. Uh, But I think we're still very primitive in the way we use language and speak. Particularly in how we celebrate ourselves. You know, you're killing it. Right, you That's, went in you're, there. So, yeah. you're so
0: acute about how the, the, the violence of the American lexicon.
1: We have to ask. I'm not saying it's wrong per se. I, I use it too, being a product of this country. But one has to wonder what is it about a culture that can only value itself through the lexicon of death? Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in New England and I heard boys talk about pleasure as conquest. I bagged her. She's in the bag. I effed her brains out. Right? Did you? I owned it. I owned that place. I knocked it out of the park. I went in there, guns blazing. Go knock them dead, drop dead gorgeous, slay. I slayed them, I slew them. Yeah. What happens to our imagination right. when we can only celebrate ourselves through our very vanishing? It feels so antithetical to what we can do, especially when you look at something like an iPhone. A a culture in a country that produced the iPhone. You know, IBM, the laptop, the computer. Sending people into space. And I think that the great myth is that, yes, technology never regresses. It goes forward. We will never, as uh, a populace, use the T-model Ford again, right? It's, it's done. Right. The same way we, we probably won't use the rotary phone. Technology, you know, when Steve Jobs passed away, the next day the iPhone innovates. He doesn't have to be there. The blueprint right. is set right. and you build on it. There might be some setbacks, but eventually technology grows. And I think we've fallen into this capitalistic myth that human knowledge and wisdom and ethics and morals are also exponentially growing. But it can't. And it, it can't simp- simply because of the fact that we die. Hmm. We all, now we're saying, you know, James Baldwin is so relevant again. Well, his works were never gone. They're always there. Right. But the people who read them, people engaged with them, passed away. People die and they lose the things that they know you know next year the the child born this year will have to experience you know a grapefruit for the first time, experience love, go on to experience loss, lose their pet, lose their mother that part of human life we need to tend to and I think it's through the humanities and through reading and through literature that we tend to this to say that this is something that has been going on and carried. And it's hard because we each have a responsibility. There is no Steve Jobs for that work. There's nobody to hand us the blueprint. Yeah. We have tools. You, you read a book and you're kind of wading through it, but it's not a perfect, definite growth. And I think it's not surprising to me in this sense that we have a president that we do. In the country, so advanced, mm-hmm. and yet through a critical thinking to a moral and ethical thinking that is in incra- absolutely so bankrupt in the way he thinks. Mm-hmm. Ethics is incredibly primitive in that mm-hmm. sense. It's not surprising because we've let that wing of our thinking atrophy for mm-hmm. so long.
0: And I, yeah, and I again to come back to how you point out that. That that very crude, coarse, uh, you know, lack of ethical thinking is embedded in ordinary language we, we all use. Yeah, we yeah. all use in the course of ordinary days. Right. I mean, even you, as a poet, have said people say to you, "You're killing it." Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: What does it do to the brain? We know language. Yeah. What is matters. it doing to us? Yeah. We know language matters. They did a control where, they. You know, they were trying to get these lab mice to move through a maze. And they labeled one mouse the smart, intelligent mouse. And the other mouse was the control, just a normal mouse. The reality was that they were both normal mice. There was nothing special about them. But the one labeled the superior mouse always achieved, went through the maze faster. And that phenomenon is actually something that's still studied. But one theory is that it was the human beings who tended them. The ones that had the, the the good label, the promising label, were tended to with more care. And, Special.
0: And I suppose a lot of that was uns- was subconscious. Right? Yeah. Like that 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 the people dealing with them didn't. <clears throat> Right. More non intending to treat them differently. Right. But it's in a way in which even the words we are thinking is shaping the way we're interacting. Yeah, absolutely. On the subconscious
1: level. And so I think what happens if we we alter our language? Where would our our future be? Where will we grow towards if we start to think differently about how the world is? You know, this a battleground state. Right. Right. Oh, it goes on and on. I thought the Civil War was over. Yeah. Yeah. But we're in battleground states, right? Target audience.
0: Something I started to notice after 9 11 was um, this language of hunting down, hunting down terrorists. But that's language you use for animals.
1: Yeah. And that coarsens us. Yeah, I grew up right in the shadow. 9-11 it was um it created something very interesting because we were essentially the last generation to play outside thoroughly yeah Um, right things like tag and manhunt you know those things were gone overnight i saw it with my own eyes our nation became a nation that dictated fear through colors today's red tomorrow's orange yellow alert And then right after that, the opioid epidemic hit New Mm -hmm. England. And it hit New England in a very interesting way, and now it's all over the country. But it started with Purdue Pharma making Oxycontin in Stanford, Connecticut. And that too, I think, began with language. When the marketers were selling and pushing the drug to... Uh, doctors, the doctors said, is this abuse resistant? Right. Are you sure it's abuse resistant? And if they said yes, they would lie. And they can't lie. So instead of saying yes to the question, they said, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Is this abuse resistant, this drug? Uh Mm -hmm. Mm Uh-huh. So the opioid epidemic as we know it, it went all the way up I-95 to Maine, down to Virginia, and now moved to West. Begin began with the word, uh-huh. And I call it a word because everything, even though it doesn't exist in the dictionary, anything with that kind of concussive and deadly power has meaning. And it deserves its own definition because it's wiped out so many of, the, of my generation.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned um, you mentioned the the Buddhist practice that was part of your childhood that you then kind of rediscover and make your own as an adult. It feels to me like you this space you inhabit, what you see so clearly, mm-hmm. and insisting on holding the complexity of that um, it seems to me that you do have ways. And I think also the implications of what you're saying, is what you're saying is that these are, this is a rigor of how we use our words and how we understand the power we have to move through time and through ordinary experiences of our day, that, that we all have it in ourselves to claim right now.
1: Why?
0: But you have ways of making that more possible in yourself. I mean, I've, I read, is it true, do you still, do you live across from a cemetery? Is yes, I right? do. And they that, do. You, that you perform this Zen Buddhist um, death
1: meditation. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I go out and I walk along the cemetery, and even without it, I sit down and I do a death meditation. And it's, it sounds very morbid, but the practice is actually supposed to bring yourself... Into the inevitable, the conditions of our lives will be vanquished through death, and then the, and then all the pettiness, you know, the, the the little angers, you know, um, that you have with those you love, with those you don't love, and your neighbor, the little things, you know, um, falls away. It's so small when the ultimate, lasting reality is is death, and. I think it goes back to Noah's Ark, too. Okay. <laughs> Noah was also doing deaf meditation. You know? He was a Zen Buddhist without yeah, knowing it. I think so. He didn't know he was Jewish. Yeah, so. yeah. Okay. I think so. <laughs> but, but I think this, all religions have this, you know, outside of all of the, the orthodoxy um, or the, and the rigor of ceremonies, at the center of it, is trying to remind us that we will die and how do we live a life worthwhile of our breath. And I think it gets harder and harder in this modern age to do that because we are pulled, you know, constantly. I mean, Heidegger got, got to this too. He says this is, the Dainan is this idea of we are, there, we are being you know, being with is such an important part of human life, but we are often thrown, he calls it thrownness, that, you know, society, gossip, you know, magazines, culture, throws us out of ourselves. And we can, the great, the great misstep, the great loss, is that we can go through our whole lives being thrown into these rivers of, of power, and ultimately leave ourselves behind, leaves ourselves without a place to hold on to. And I think thinking about death and thinking about what we do towards it, around it, helps me center myself in this such a a chaotic space. And I do think it's part of my own nurturing of my own mental health.
0: Mm -hmm. There's so much I wanted to talk to you about, and it's been so it's beautiful, actually, what's emerging here. And it does, it feels like, you know, you've described how your your method of, of creating is that you you walk a lot, right? Mm, Again, yeah. it's embodied practice. And, yeah. and you walk and you walk and, and things build up in you. And there's, there's, there's a way in which um, I feel like words and meaning kind of flow out of you, mm-hmm. which is also an experience one has in, in reading your work. Right. And as we're hearing, it's consonant with the way you understand reality and help other people understand reality.
1: I mean, it's not always that smooth. No, Um, I'm sure. I mean, there's a lot of... (laughs) I'm sure it's not. (laughs) It's kind of like, you know, a lot of things flow, but not all of them are good, you know, so sometimes i got to rein it back. Yeah, um. okay. Yeah, I didn't
0: want to (laughs) suggest it. Um, I... You know there was I just wanted to note this there's a the picture um on the cover of Night Sky with Exit mm-hmm. wounds it looks like such a happy picture of a little boy and two women who love them you imagine one of them is his mother and yeah in fact you guys were in a refugee camp in the Philippines mm-hmm. and you had to pay, someone took that picture and you paid them for that picture yeah
1: three cups of rice for that photo mm-hmm. We were in a refugee camp and we got rations on each day, each family got three cups of rice and there was a photographer who went around, Um, you know, even in a refugee camp, you know, it's a microcosm of the world.
3: Somebody's going to try to make a
1: business. Um, And, you know, I was thinking about the cover for my first book. That was my first book. and Yeah. We had several ideas, uh, but I think part of my education with the history of Vietnam and America's involvement in it it became something very different from what was given to me in the textbooks. The textbook says, um, well, here's um, first of all, here's five chapters on George Washington, (laughs) Um, what he ate, what kind of teeth he had, um, what kind of tree he chopped down. Yeah. And by the way, you know, somebody chopped down a fruit tree, that's a red flag for me. <laughs> that's true. I'm just gonna say, I was going to say, nobody asked why. Right. Chop down a fruit tree. <laughs> um, and, you know, so, but the myth, I realized the myth of America was so strong. Yeah. And one could argue that these textbooks is one form of propaganda. And, and, and Roland Bach would talk about these competing myths, that there's no real reality within a society except myths that overpower one another. And it's very interesting because when we got to the Vietnam War, it was like two pages. There's a photo of Kennedy. Then there's a photo of Nixon. Right. Right. Something right. bad happened over there. Anyway, it's over. Yeah. Then we went on to the Gulf War when we were heroes. Yeah. Yeah, right? So I thought, uh, by, when I, by the time I was in college, I said, i got to figure this out. Yeah. So I started to do my own research. And I realized right away that one's research with the Vietnam War, something I was not prepared for, was to see... Upwards of hundreds of dead bodies. Mm -hmm. Asian bodies. Mm -hmm. Bodies that look like me. So when you are most recognizable in your research as a corpse, it does something to you. Sometimes the bodies were so mangled, you didn't know where one began and and ended. And so I wanted, for my first book, to have Vietnamese bodies on the cover, that mm-hmm. we're living. Mm-hmm. And so that photo you know, was, a fo- was a moment of salvaging and preserving bodies in transit. Yeah. What was it about these women, I thought, yeah. that would surrender their very sustenance in order to preserve their image?
0: Right. They, yeah, and, and even when you came here, I mean, somewhere I think you said it in that, you know, you had to pay for that picture. You had to pay to be seen. And even what you're saying, I was saying about, about how even in that moment, in, and I was a, a child, but, you know, the, the fact of, those, the, of being able to see those bodies was what became, is, is actually what ended the war. Yeah. Um, and then after that, we never saw bodies come home from war again. Yeah. They um, learned, yeah. They learned. Um, but you, even when you came here, and this is about this is about the immigrant experience, and the, but it's also about being Vietnamese. Your mother would say to you, uh, "Remember, child, don't get noticed. You're already Vietnamese." Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think it's very common for many immigrants, many families of color. It's interesting that wisdom often arrives as a warning, you know. I think it's often something that those in the center, those in power never know, that before you leave the house in order to achieve yourself, right? One sends one's children to school in order to fulfill their dreams. And in order to do that, you, you have to be warned that there is a strike against you, by the way. So sink in fade away right? and I think that's the great crisis of the first and second generation the first generation made it here Mm -hmm. and to live at all is such a privilege that they're happy and even encourage you to put your head down, work, fade away get your meals and and live a quiet life and I think the second generation the the great conundrum there, the great um, paradox is that they want to be seen. They want to make something. Right. And what a better way to make something and fill yourself with agency than to be an artist. You know, so so many of us immigrant children end up betraying our parents in order to subversively achieve our parents' dreams.
0: Right. 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 Um. I wanna open this up in a minute. I thought I might ask you to read I thought I might ask you to read so many other things, but it's so amazing to sit and and be in conversation with you. This this poem about your mother, head first. Mm-hmm. Um, page twenty.
1: This poem is in the voice of the mother Begins with a Vietnamese proverb Head first Không có gì bằng cơm với cá Không có gì bằng má với con Don't you know A mother's love neglects pride The way fire neglects the cries of what it burns my son even tomorrow you will have today don't you know there are men who touch breasts as they would the tops of skulls men who carry dreams over mountains the dead on their backs but only a mother can walk with the weight of a second beating heart. Stupid boy, you can get lost in every book, but you'll never forget yourself the way God forgets his hands. When they ask you where you're from, tell them your name was fleshed from the toothless mouth of a war woman that you were not born but crawled headfirst into the hunger of dogs. My son, tell them the body is a blade that sharpens by cutting. Um,
0: your mother was worked in a nail salon all of your life and her life and you worked there and members of your family worked there and I love it that you were able to you were eventually able to buy her a house and yeah. she always wanted a garden yeah. because you you are now seen Yeah, she watched you there's a story I love the story, I wonder if you would tell it about the experience she had when she came when she first came to hear you read and of course she couldn't yeah. understand
1: the English, yeah. but her reaction to you. You know, the first time I was reading at the Mark Twain house, of all places, in Hartford, and it was nearby, so I asked her to come, and it was the first time she saw me read, and of course she doesn't understand the English, but she was so proud to just see her son up there, you know, at, in a spotlight, yeah. a small spotlight. And I went back to her, after I read, people clap and they stood and it was lovely. And I went back to her and she was sobbing, and it, it being the, the dutiful son, I said, well, what did I do? What happened? Are you okay? You know? um, and she said, uh, no, I, I just never thought I'd live to see all these old white people clapping for my son. <laughs> And, and, you know, I thought it was, it was, a, it was interesting because I said, I, I trying to understand what that means. Yeah. What it means, what kind of validation is that? You know, it's not necessarily one that I share myself, you know. So I almost had this, this arrogant gaze to it. I said, I don't, that doesn't seem like victory to me just because a bunch of white folks, you know, clapped. Uh, Victory is something else to me, something more. And then uh, until the next day, I was at the salon again with her, her makeup's off and she put her nice dress away that she wore at the reading, she took her earrings off. And right out of the gate in the early morning, I saw her Right out the gate, in the early morning, I saw her and watched her kneel at the pedicure chair before one old white woman after another. It was so humbling because I thought... right, Finally, finally she, she was below their eye level for so many years. And for one brief moment, in Mark Twain's house, <laughs> um, they saw her face to face as an equal, and that's when I understood that is victory. Yeah.
0: Let's um, let's open this up for a few minutes. Is the microphone roving around? Yeah, there it is.
3: First, thanks so much. Hi. You've spoken a lot today about the immigrant experience, and we really appreciate it. Um, language is also changing for the queer community. I love that Like, I can call myself a dyke, <laughs> which was so derogatory for so many years. Can you talk a little bit about maybe like the reclamation of language? as a queer person, um, and why that's so important.
1: You know, it's not a a coincidence that I put the word gorgeous on my book. You know, it's a a word that's so important to the queer community, and it's a little, you know, wink. Um, And I think uh, it's that very community, and also communities of color, and they often intermingle queer and communities of color as language labs. And this is what you know. The, the cultural critic and scholar Fred Moten says about the slave ship. He said the slave ship, amongst many other things, was a language lab. Folks were trying to figure out what to do down, down there. And I think that that notion of innovation on the margins is actually incredibly freeing and true to how literature innovated. Mm -hmm. If we look at hybrid texts that we now see in the works of Claudia Rankin, Maggie Nelson, Banu Kapil, Marguerite Dara, it was women who spearheaded that mode because nothing else was available. The great American novel wasn't available to them. It wasn't there for them to participate in. And so they made a better alternative route through language. And and so I think the pressures and the social restraints lead us naturally to find new ways of uttering ourselves into existence. And I think, you know, one anecdote that we've already had in the queer community to the lexicon of death is I'm living for it. I live for that dress this is true. Um, And so I think that's a great moment where we're tracing the actual reclamation of language as a treatise towards the future. Don't you want to live for that dress too, right? Um, And I think that that's where I'm really excited. When I'm in these communities, when I'm with my communities, I pay attention to what they're saying, how they're using language, and how we use language because it makes life so much more pleasurable to know that we can say no to the systems of delivery because I think every generation faces this wave, this large wave of the past, this, this almost tsunami-like wave, and we we have to be, have the courage to see it coming and then find our roots and say I'm going to use and alter things that fit me better. Because it's very easy to just surrender and say, it's too much, history is so large, the momentum of it so strong that I better just hunker down and, and close my eyes until it's over. But the great excitement is that we can change it as soon as we start talking to each other. And, and living for that is, is one of those ways.
2: Hi, uh, my name
3: is Amanda. I'm a producer and professor from Toronto. Thank you so much for this awesome conversation. Uh, This question is actually for Krista, talking about how you put up the raw interviews of all of your yeah. Uh, yeah, of all of your interviews. It's great, and especially like this conversation was so good. And how do you choose what to cut? Um, I use it as a teaching
2: tool in my classrooms and workshops a lot. So I was just wondering if you could talk about what inspired you to have that idea, and what's the listenership like with the raw interviews?
0: And how do you use it as a teaching tool, showing that you I, can do like, that? I'm like, how
2: do we decide what to cut from this? And let's listen to oh, the before and after. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, so so you know, sometimes people who are younger ask me, uh, "How did you start your podcast?" And I say, "Well, we started a public radio show," and they look at me like they you don't. Know, what am I talking about? So because you know, <laughs> podcast didn't exist when we started this. Um, so interestingly, I mean, even I had to fight so hard, you know. Those years ago, even to say, we're going to do one conversation for the whole hour, that felt way too long form. People were very uncomfortable with it. And as a result, we're on not prime time. Um, (laughs) I want to be quick because I want to get back to you. But um, at some point before podcasting, or maybe right as podcasting came along, Lily's here. um, Actually, it wasn't my idea. One of my producers, Trent Gillis at the time, um, said that if we really believe in this value, virtue of transparency that we talk about, that the digital world is calling us all to, then we need to walk the talk. And it felt really counterintuitive having been in media before this digital world. And I think we had this impassioned discussion for a year. I was like, well, why do we do all this work to get it down to 51 minutes if we're gonna give people the mess? And it is messy. I mean. It's, this is less messy, but if I'm in the studio with somebody um, and I have 90 minutes, I can let them go down some road that I really don't know if there's gonna be anything there, but it's okay, because there might be, and if not, we can come back. Um, we have found with younger people, and we found that it gets used in like high school classes, and because we, have, they, we give the raw, they trust the rest of the media project more. So that it's been and the, it's huge. It's hundreds of thousands. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are now, but it's a very large percent, very large numbers of people in every show who listen to the unedited. Thank you. Um, I have a question about language, because I come from the Latinx community. Um, and we now are trying to use all of these words to make sure that we include everyone. And yet I'm noticing how so many people feel left out. To me, it makes total sense to use the word Latinx. My uncle doesn't understand it. And there's so much
3: shaming and, like, again, exclusion and violence. In, in another way, I'm not justifying the fact that they don't understand it yet, but I wonder if you have any, the both of you, um, any thoughts on that, on how do we deal with um, making sure that the language that we're now using to make sure that we include everyone doesn't go backwards and, yeah.
0: You know, we just interviewed Sandra Cisneros and we had long discussions about how we were going to what language we were going to use
1: in the script
0: and it was really it was complicated and we went back and forth. I don't know, I'd love to know what you yes. think about
1: that. I, I think one of the things about the language lab as a metaphor is that it's an experiment and you know the agency that allows us to make new words and to allow things to the, what, what those words hold, you know, the same thing, the same way we were the word queer, right? It's, it's still up, t- there's a lot of older folks in the community who still feel triggered by that word, mm-hmm. you know, and they're still very uneasy about it. Um, in, in many sense, it's a, it's a word, it's a useful word because it holds so many of us, and so we're still debating amongst each other, um, and I think that dialogue is actually a good thing. You know, because we, we, we words can be just as oppressive if we just deliver like a, a newsletter one day, a metaphorical one or a real one, to people in our community say, this is what it is, live with it, this is progress. And so we, we end up creating our own, you know, this sort of authoritarian regime around policing language. And I think the open-ended question, the open nature of it, and looking at the the history of etymology is that we actually don't have much control. We, we have some in the present, but once we die, when that little line of sedimentary rock is eclipsed by another and another, we've surrendered our time. And the next generation will have to decide what to do with that. Right? I, I keep thinking about this beautiful interview with James Baldwin, where a student asked him you know, um, why Did he refer to himself as a Negro? And he says, because my grandmother called herself the N-word. This is where I'm at. And I understand that we're moving, but you have to understand where I'm coming from, that I'm in the line of progress here. And this is a huge arrival for me. So in that moment with Baldwin, there's this beautiful, there's a student who's kind of like, why are you saying this? And Baldwin is saying that we're still moving, that you can change it. But you have to understand that I'm coming from a space where my elders call themselves that. Yeah. And, and this is progress for me. So we we now we can have that. You can, it's up to you now. And you can see in that rare moment where two generations are handing off the baton to each other, but Baldwin's kind of staying firm and saying that this is a we took forever to get to what I'm saying now, what I'm using now and that is up to date. so now from from baldwin and now we've already advanced right and so i think that the idea of forgiving ourselves being more um tender and compassionate for the language lab because it's so messy a lab is messy it's an experiment there's thing, there's stains on the wall things are being broken we got to clean things up and if we just allow ourselves the missteps allow ourselves to update each other when language is growing and gives ourselves that room, um, we can finally move together without, you know, cutting each other out. Um, but it's very hard because you need to be vigilant, and it, you, it depends on people in the community. Because in the next town over, the next community over, the next forum or group chat, it could be something else completely and mm-hmm. something very regressive and damaging. Which is why, I, again, there's no exponential growth to this. Each person is responsible for themselves, and each community is responsible to each other. And if we drop the ball, we can, we can drop ourselves out of the conversation very quickly. You know, the, the, the old founders of this country knew this, right? They knew it took only one generation when they took Native American children away from their families, put them in boarding schools, they knew they only had to do it with one generation for that language to be lost. Cut one link, and you can recalibrate and infuse the propaganda. And so I think, in the inverse, we can take that knowledge for the better and, and be vigilant with ourselves in saying that it can only it takes only one link for us to lose this, you know, for us to lose the what we're holding in this space. I think there are a lot of exciting things that has been in response to this administration is that we're, we're talking about it now. You know, I don't know about y'all, but when I was growing up in the Clinton and the Bush eras, people really believed we were post-racial. Like I talked to a lot of folks who felt that way. You know, And a lot of this, you know, this ridiculous notion, quote unquote, that Clinton was the first black president because he played the right. saxophone, it was crazy, right? right? <laughs> And it didn't make any sense for f- the people around me. But we weren't in the conversation. But now with, with, with Trump and his administration, now there's, we're having these conversations. More people have access to it. And the question is, will what will be discovered in this sedimentary moment radiate upwards? Or will it be lost and buried? So that some archivist 100 years from now will go back and say, wow, what a revolution that was. Right? In the way we now look at the Greek and Romans, wow, what a sexual revolution they had. Where did it all go? How do we regress so much? Right. 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 That can always happen.
0: Maybe one more question.
3: Do... Um, <clears throat> hi, hi there. <clears throat> Um, I have to say that um, um, probably I've been listening to Krista for um, as long as I can remember. And um, this has to be one of the most moving, um, tender, um, beyond words conversations I've heard. And, um, And I'm so glad that I got to see this, the embodiment of your language. Um, So along those lines, I was interested to know about some of the body practices that you do. I I completely hear what you're saying about the potential for language and the care that each word uttered. The responsibility that one. Can reflect on that and the mess and the chaos and all this. And I know that Krista, for years, you know, has been, been, been talking about the importance of language. There also is some preparatory practices that come with that responsibility. And I was wondering if you could share any any thoughts on that. Um, it's,
1: you know, I, I do think it, it does. Um, Begin an end in the body, that, that we, you know, language is something we carry. And for a long time uh, in our species, we have been carrying it. Reading is very fairly new.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Even the Library of Alexandria, people read aloud in it. So you go in that library, it's just a hum of voices. And I think th- being able to articulate and talk to each other Um, face-to-face like this, having the sonic reality, to see how your words land in somebody's body, it's so important. You know, and ironically, I learned this through having a a, a pet, a dog. I could be saying anything, but if my tone changes, my little dog, Tofu, (laughs) he knows, you know? He knows. He's, he's listening to this, the pressures and the sonics of my voice, even more so, of course, than the, the words themselves. I could be saying, yeah. you know, Merry Christmas or Merry Christmas. And all of a sudden, he knows the difference. And I, so I, I think I always bring this back to my students as well. I said, you're working on a poem or a story. You know, when you're hitting a dead end, when it's not going, Take it with you, get away from the desk, turn away from, it means something is not happening. It doesn't mean you're blocked. I don't think writer's block is real. I think it's the mythos of capitalism, <laughs> right? That you're always supposed to be producing this, this anxiety of being productive and quantifying your self-worth through page counts and word counts. So I said, you're, you're, you're working, but you have to work differently now. Now you have to work with your body. Maybe there's questions you're not asking. Maybe you have to recite this poem and walk with it. And so the, the, to me, this is actually more available to us as a species. This is what we've always been doing. We've, we've been telling stories as we walked. We've been telling stories as we work side by side. That, that this, this idea that language is a private, isolated act is so new that I think we still haven't figured out if it's useful or not. And so I think it's valuable to open up that debate again. And, and not to say that it has to be like this or like that for anybody, but to say, if it's not working, we can do something different, an alternative route. And in this sense, having the words in the air, I feel like the mm-hmm. voice in the air is like a second page. You know, the way you can articulate the pauses, the cadences. Mm-hmm. I learned this mostly from watching Whitney Houston. <laughs> if you listen to Whitney Houston's songs, they start like a whisper. Right? Yeah. And then how do we get to the pinnacles, right? The bright lit room of her, you know, uh, peaks. But, but the power and the mastery in her performance mm. is the oscillation and the respect of how a word which is static on the page can be lifted and amplified through using the whole range of human emotion in the voice. So I, I'm, I, I'm an apprentice of that. Mm.
0: You know, I'm, I would not have traded the experience of being with you physically, um, but I think I... I, I really love most of my interviews are remote mm-hmm. and I'm in a studio and people somebody's coming in through my headphones kind of basically but I what I there's there's often an assumption in people who don't work in this medium that that makes it less intimate but to to have the human voice to work with that and and to get everything everything that the human voice carries I mean it, it is the body yeah. um, is really magical yeah. to really be able to completely focus on that. Speaking of the body and walking and movement, um, I want to close. You, you wrote this beautiful essay in the Rumpus mm-hmm. in 2014, called "The Weight of Our Living," on hope, fire escapes, and visible desperation. Mm-hmm. Um, it was. Part of the context of that piece was your uncle's death by suicide. He Mm -hmm. was three years older than you and you'd grown up together. And that wove into you reflecting on these walks you do through New York City Mm -hmm. on fire escapes. I'm going to read a little bit of just, and then I want you to say more. You know, all that richness and drama sealed away in a fortress whose walls echoed with communication of elemental an exquisite language, if you're looking at all the buildings, and yet only the fire escape, a clinging extremity, inanimate and often rusting, spoke in its hardened, exiled silence with the most visible human honesty. We are capable of disaster,
1: and we are scared. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, it was such a blow. Anyone who's lost anybody to suicide, um, I lost my uncle. I lost a few friends, you know, um, and it's the great mystery in the great violence of taking oneself out of the picture. You know, I've been grappling with that for so long, and I think one of the things that lead us to that is that we, you start to feel that you are always out of the picture. This loneliness. That language does not allow us to access, mm-hmm. you know, the way we say hello to each other, you know. Hi, how are you? Oh, good, right. good, 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 good. Yeah. Right. So the how are you is now defunct. It doesn't access, it, it fills, it's fluff, right? And so w- what happens to our language, this great advanced technology that we've had, when it starts to fail at its function, and it starts to obscure rather than open and i think the, the the crisis that my uncle went through and a lot of my friends was the crisis of communication mm-hmm. they couldn't say i'm hurt right. and looking at you know i always go i would remember when i heard of his suicide i was a student at brooklyn college in new york and i went for the longest walk and i kept seeing these fire escapes and I said, what happens if we had that? What is the linguistic existence of a fire escape? That, that, that we can allow, give ourselves permission to say, are you really okay? I know we're talking, but you wanna step out on the fire escape and you can tell me the, the truth. And I think we're so, we built shame into vulnerability. And we've sealed it off in our culture, not at the table, not at the dinner table. Don't say this here. Don't say that there. Don't talk about this, right? This is not cocktail conversation, what have you. We police access to ourselves. And the great loss is that we can move through our whole lives picking up phones and talking to our most beloveds and yet still not know who they are or how are you, has failed us. And we have to find something else. And, and I thought about that, what if literature, my participation in it, and that's my field, if you will, what if the poem, the story, the novel, at its best, can serve as a fire escape? Mm-hmm. Because on the page, you don't have the awkward reality of a body bumping into someone in the supermarket. You don't have to say, how about them patriots, right? You don't have to talk about the weather. You can go right in, deep. Yeah. And I really have been, it changed the way I thought about writing and literature. In that, if we have the fire escape as a reality in our buildings, what does it look like in the reality of our communication? Yeah. In our language? What does that look like? I'm still figuring that out. I'm still, every book, every poem, I think, is my attempt at articulating a fire escape. Um, but I think it was a great reckoning for me because here I am, supposedly a writer, you know, and then my uncle dies, and I've lost so much. We talk all the time, we say all these things, and yet I never knew what was happening. And if that's the case, language, this field that I chose, this thing that I feel so much uh, hope for, failed me. And I, it was a reckoning, I think, existentially with, with myself as an artist.
0: I wonder if, to close this incredible time together, if you would read, I just copied out a paragraph from the end of this essay, um, from 2014, The Weight of Our Living.
1: The poem, like the fire escape, as feeble and thin as it is, has become my most concentrated architecture of resistance. A place where I can be as honest as I need to because the fire has already begun in my home swallowing my most valuable possessions and even my loved ones. My uncle is gone. I will never know exactly why. But I still have my body and with it these words hammered into a structure just wide enough to hold the weight of my living. I want to use it to talk about my obsessions and fears. My odd and idiosyncratic joys. I want to leave the party through the window and find my uncle standing on a piece of iron shaped into visible desperation which must also be, how can it not, the beginning of visible hope. I want to stay there until the building burns down. I want to love more than death can harm. And I want to tell you this often. That, despite being so human and so terrified, here, standing on this unfinished staircase to nowhere and everywhere, surrounded by the cold and starless night, we can live, and we will. Ocean Vuong, thank you so much. Thank you.